Good morning. Uh, we continue our study in the book of Luke, uh, coming to now to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. You'll see how this is divided. There's a parable followed by verses 10 through 13 that are right on the heels explaining more about the parable and how we're to obey it. Then the next section, beginning with the verse 14, starts with a kind of transition, discussion, and introduction to a second parable that starts in 19. So you have a parable, discussion, then discussion, parable, right? That's how it goes. First, as your Bible, oh, by the way, if you're using the Bible that's in the pew, it's on page 875. I forgot to tell you if you want to find that that way. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, my people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. In other words, rewrite your bill. In your your writing so that it looks original, that's the way it looks. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner had things bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us and he said then I beg you father to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would set our hearts free to be Attached to God and God alone. Oh Lord, our hearts crave after so much. We crave for possessions and status, popularity. We crave to have significance. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace. Set us free, Lord, to be attached to you, to receive all things from you. To use what you give us for your glory and your honor. To use it, Lord, for the good of others. Oh, bless us, Lord. Teach us. Fix our hearts on Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I had a friend who was an actor in New York, and his agent was none other than the sister of Leonard Bernstein. And he recalls meeting with her one time discussing an upcoming contract. And she actually said it this way. Of course, Tom, we have not discussed the subject of money. <laughs> so that's how she said money. Money. We all have it. We've all made an idol out of it one way or another, whether putting our trust in it, right, to bring us happiness or longing for it more than we even long for God himself, being prideful that we have it or worried that we don't have it. In some way we've made it an idol. And that's probably why Jesus calls it dishonest wealth here uh, two times. He contrasts dishonest wealth with true riches. So dishonest wealth is the wealth of this world. And it's dishonest in that it tends to make us dishonest. It tends to turn our hearts away from God. To make us idolatrous. And it's also dishonest in that it lies to us. It promises us significance. It promises us happiness. But it will never deliver it to us. Money, we can't live without it. And we can hardly live with it. That is to live well. To live generously. To live graciously. The two words that we can 
gain from our text this morning that could help us navigate this trip we have with money in tow. And those are uh, stewardship and compassion. Stewardship summarizes this first section of chapter 16 through verse 13. And then we'll use compassion to characterize this second section. You'll find those, that outline in your bulletin. Now, as a bit of a context here, last week we were in chapter 15 and it talked about the embrace, uh, befriending, including others who are sinners. And this is about embracing, including, befriending those who are poor. So there's a strong similarity in 15 and 16 being put together so that we're not to isolate ourselves from those who are broken and lost and unwanted and unlovely, whether you're in chapter 16 or you're in chapter uh, 15. It's all about embracing the unlovely. And you can see uh, the background further of pass of of. Uh, the, the further background of these passages weren't included, my, my bad. But anyway, there are passages in Luke that talk about the use of our possessions and in, in opening up our homes to those that can't return, giving to those that can't give back, and doing all of this in hope of then entering into the true riches of heaven. So this is a theme in Luke. Uh, to spend generously what we have that we might enter into heaven. And we want to explore this. So here's this rich man. Wait, he's a manager. He's wasting his possessions. He's fired and he's told to turn in the account books. But before he does, he's going to settle these accounts by discounting them, right? Knocking them down. You can imagine if you got a call from the bank. They said, we'd like to talk to you about your house loan. And it probably would make you nervous and they don't know what are they going to do, require me to pay it all right now? What's the deal? They come in, they said, I'd like, I like to rewrite the loan and all you have to do is sign it. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, it's a $200,000 loan. I'm going to make it a $125,000 loan. They're like, are you serious? Yes. You mean I'm going to immediately have $75,000 more equity in my house than I had before I walked in here? That's what I'm telling you. you can you imagine how that... It's just like somebody gave you $75,000. And these were large sums of money that he's talking about here. These people were deliriously happy that he had discounted their loans. They suddenly had all of this money that they didn't have. And these people were people of means and so when he got out they would be able to probably give him a job or they have a garage apartment that he can stay in that kind of thing see these people he was making friends with people that could take care of him when he got out and it's really crazy is it that the rich man to whom he did these things says basically you know that was pretty sharp that was pretty shrewd i have to admit it that was smart, what he did. He, he prepared for his future. He may have been, the, you know, he, he received the bad end of it, the rich man, but he's commenting on how smart that was. And here's Jesus. You'd think Jesus would say, okay, that's what the man did. Don't go out and do that. 
Don't go wrong somebody if you're managing their money like that. But Jesus is pulling a positive out of this. He says that this is what happens in the world and in their context, the context of, of the situation he finds himself in, this guy plans for the future. Are you planning for your future? And now he's talking about something different. He's talking about the subject of Luke, which has always been generosity. You see, it, it's hard to see it, but this manager was being generous by forgiving these loans. And that's the picture of either almsgiving, giving to the poor, giving to the church, giving uh, in, in some situations where somebody maybe has borrowed money and they're really struggling and you just forgive the debt. Maybe literally a copy of what's being done here. It's generosity, and he, and, and he says, if you prove to be generous in your life, then you can be received in the heavenly places. And there, there's a little bit of uh, idea of, when you give to the poor, as Proverbs 14.31 says, you lend to the Lord. And if you oppress the poor, you have insulted their maker. So that... God is connected in some way to the helpless so that as you deal with them, you're dealing with God himself. We know that really gets intimate when you're talking about the body of Christ because in Matthew 25, Jesus divides the goats and the sheep according to how they've treated one another. If you visited me in prison and you clothed me and fed me when I was in a dangerous situation and you endangered yourself to help me, then you prove that you are my children because you did it for me. It was as though you did it for me. So the real one who receives us into the heavenly places is God himself. He's the one who is connected to the poor in this way. And so there's this new age in Christ, this new aeon he talks about here, the... uh, they're in the old age, and now we are in the new age, the new generation, the sons of light. And this is how we must act in terms of our generosity. There's an interesting play on words where he says in verses 5 and 9, they will receive me when I get out. Well, the word that he uses to say, take the bill, is the same word, receive. So the idea, it's... it's has to do with hospitality. If they receive your generosity, see, take the bill, receive the bill. If they receive your generosity, then you will be received in into heaven. He used his time remaining uh, and his opportunity and his position to establish his future. And Jesus says, are you establishing your future? By the way, you're using your opportunity and your resources? Is that what you're doing? The children of this age know how the world works and they know how to work it to their benefit. Will you do the same? Will you manifest generosity so that you'll be received into heaven? And we'll get to trusting in Christ and all that, but don't fail the, the, the brunt of this uh, parable here. Will you assess the long-term effect of your actions... And work to ensure that you will be cared for in the last day. Like this guy did. Now, 
in verses 10 through 13, there are three aspects of this stewardship. He says, little and much, and that is the stuff of this world and the true riches in the future. So he calls this that we have is the little, and then much is the future riches that with which we'll be entrusted. So kids, it's like if uh, your parents get you a lizard, pretty small thing, and you care for it, and you take care of that thing for a whole year, and a lizard thrives, and then they come in one day and they say, you know what? You're taking good care of this lizard. We're going to get you a puppy. Yo! You see, you took care of the little thing. Now you've got something big. And Jesus is saying that's what it's like in this world. How are you going to take care of your toys and the stuff that's in your room? And how generous are you going to be with it? Are you going to always hold it and say, mine? Are you going to share it with friends and share it with a brother and sister? What's going to be your attitude? And for adults, the same thing. What's our attitude with the little that we have? Are we being generous and sharing with it and sacrificing with it so that we will then receive the puppy in the last day, so to speak? So that's one aspect of this stewardship, little and then much. Another aspect is we have another's stuff, and, and if we take care of another's stuff, then we can have our own one day. That's the verse, uh, verse 12 there. So it's like this, kids. You are given responsibility to take care of your neighbor's dog when they're out of town. And... You do this for a year, you do this for two years, and every time they're out of town, you take such excellent care of their dog. And then one day your parents come in again and say, you know, you've really demonstrated that you're able to take care of somebody else's dog. We're going to give you your own dog, right? That's the idea. So little to much, but you've now got someone else's stuff, and now will you take care of it and use it as that person that being wants you to, that is God. So the thing is, your toys, your books, the stuff that's in your room is not really yours. It's God's. So literally, when you say to your brother or sister or friend, mine, they could say God's like that. Right. (laughs) Now, kids don't use that on your brother and sister. Like when they won't share, that's God's. You have to share it. Right. I know how you'll use that, of course. But that principle is there so that that we understand that this is a stewardship from God. And it's not only the possessions you have, but the opportunities you have, the time you have, the gifts and abilities that you have. These are the little riches that have been entrusted to us. And then one day we'll be entrusted the great riches that will be our own to manage forever and ever in heaven. So how will I use what he has entrusted me? How will I take care of the neighbor's dog? How will I take care of God's stuff and use it like he wants me to? Because he wants me to be generous like he is. He wants me to reflect his goodness. To reflect his kindness. And especially as we'll see, to reflect how kind, how generous God is. He even gave his only son for us. Now, you've been given stuff from the God who gave his own son for you. 
How do you think he wants you to be with the stuff he's given you? Because that's what he's like. He gives himself away. He gives his most precious possessions away. Now, of course, we have to take care of our own family. He's worse than an unbeliever if you don't take care of your own family to meet the needs of your family. We're even encouraged in Proverbs and other places to save some for the future. All those things. But what's the attitude? What's the attitude? And the key is found in verse 13. And that is, is money your God, is money your master or is God your master? That's what's going to determine what you do with this little that's been entrusted to you. God putting his stuff in your hands. Because money definitely wants to own you. It wants to rule you. Money wants you to worship it, you might say. Because it's personified here. Uh, as a, 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 as a master. It's relentless. Money doesn't want a, revi- a, a rival. It's perverse because it turns you in on yourself if you give yourself to it. It causes you to exclude the needs of others. It isolates you. It exalts you. It makes you act in a way that's an abomination to God. There's a callousness that money can create. One is called the rule of wealth, the dominion of wealth over your life. And it's cruel. Money uses you and abuses you and it leaves you empty and unsatisfied and destroys you in the end. It has you on a leash doing what it wants you to. And that is not to care for others. If you give yourself to money and not to God. So, will we orient ourselves to the true riches he describes here? Or, as he says earlier in Luke, the unfailing treasure in heaven? Will we love God or hate God? That's what he asks in verse 13. If I, if I take money as my God, I'm turning my back on God himself. So this stewardship is to be a stewardship of generosity. And let me remind you what Jesus' stewardship was. He was entrusted. He says in John 6, the Father has given me a people. They were entrusted to Jesus. He speaks of them as his sheep in John 10. What did his stewardship cost? cost him his life. That's how faithful Jesus was to his stewardship. And he knew before he took it. What if neighbor says, um, I want you to take care of my dog while I'm away, but I do want you to know that there's some people that are come to steal it and they're going to kill you if you stand in their way. <laughs> You're gonna, uh, I'm not going to take the job. Thank you. Jesus knew if he would be entrusted with these people, it would mean that he must bear their wrath and the punishment that they deserve. It would mean his death. You see, that's the glorious stewardship that rings in our ears, right? To be faithful like Jesus is. And then the other encouraging thing is that Jesus' stewardship is that he will continue to uphold us. He will continue to strengthen us. He will continue to change us and to make us into his image. 
He's not going to fail in that stewardship. So that as we see our struggle with money, our our struggle to uh, be generous with all that we have, do we give ourselves up to Jesus and say, continue to work in me, Lord. Fulfill your gracious stewardship that I am in your hands and you're not done with me. Continue to change me and to make me into a gracious, generous person. So, the stewardship of generosity. And then the second section is about faithful compassion. Not just faithful stewardship, but faithful compassion. And right off the bat, the Pharisees just ridicule him. Jesus has just said, make friends with money. That is, be generous to the poor. But they're friends of money, right? That's their problem. And by ridiculing him, they're just striking off and saying, we care nothing for him at all. We reject him completely. You see, they sought status. They wanted to be well known. And they wanted to avoid certain associations, like I've seen many mothers, you know, direct their daughters to certain associate or their sons or fathers do the same to certain associations i'd like you to be this person's friend i'm going to make sure you're this person's friend maybe not that person's friend it's like we do do you we generally like to have people over that have had common experiences with us that have money like we do or more money than we do but not people that don't have any money like we have That's not status. That's not important. That's our tendency. Just like the Pharisees. Separating the wealthy, separating themselves out from the poor, neglecting the poor for their own status. That's the rule of wealth. And this is what Jesus says is an abomination to God in verse 15. It's detestable. And see, he brings up the law and the prophets because they're all about the law and the prophets. See, they're, they're, they're law keepers. They're very precise in how they keep the law. But Jesus ties it to the kingdom that's represented in him. He said, the law and the prophets came, but now it's the good news of the kingdom. That's what the law and the prophets were pointing to. Uh, The law is going to be fulfilled in what's happening. Every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled in me. So the Old Testament is to be interpreted in the light of Christ because the Old Testament taught over and over care for the poor. This was preached. In fact, God, before they ever went in the land, told them, unless you if you don't take care of the poor, you're going to be judged. And in the prophets, they're saying you're being judged because you didn't take care of the poor. You oppressed them because they turned to idolatry, ugly, wicked idolatry that has people turn on one another and devour one another. Not the true God who's a God of sacrifice and kindness and love. And so the law, which is about kindness and caring for one another, has its rich fulfillment in Christ. Bringing the intention of the law to pass that here's the the primary example of caring for others. God comes and lays down his life for his people. You see, people talk about the law being a transcript of God's character. Okay, like it's God's character put into law. And so the fulfillment of that law 
the enriched display of that law is the revelation of God's character in the person of Christ. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled that gracious intention of the law to care for one another. And if the Pharisees are going to keep the law, they must embrace this love of Christ. And really, it seems to come out of the blue, but the reason he mentions marriage here is that they would dismiss a wife for any reason at all. Like, she burns a supper, divorce. I don't think you're so pretty anymore, divorce. And Jesus says, that's adultery. You've adulterated your commitment, your integrity to be faithful, to love, no matter what. Same toward the poor, to love the poor no matter what, to love your own family no matter what. It's the same integrity, you see, the same love, the same embrace, same giving up of yourself for the good of others. And then this terrible, I think, I mean, not terrible because of what it teaches, but it's terrible to hear this story of of Lazarus. This rich man, the purple is very expensive. This white linen is very expensive. He has it all. He feasts sumptuously every day. Lazarus obviously is either so so, uh, weak because he's starving to death or he's crippled. He's immobile. He's just been put there in front of the gate. The dogs are not good dogs. These are scavenger dogs. This is like you've been washed up on a beach, you've been in the ocean and your skin is flayed and nicked and you wake up and you can't move because you're helpless, but crabs are eating your, your body. That's what this is like. They're just further abusing this poor man who can't move, he can't stop him from licking the blood off of him. And the rich man just walks by him every day, every day. And it's interesting, it says the rich man died and was buried. He had an official burial. He may have paid a lot of money. A lot of people came to this burial of the rich man. It was lavish, expensive. Poor man wasn't even, Lazarus wasn't buried, it says. Indication is he just died and was thrown out somewhere. But, look at the change. His companions were scavenger dogs. Now his companions are angels. He was had sores and now he's clothed in the bosom of Abraham, showing the favor that God has toward this man. And then you see how far the rich man's riches took him. Must have been a startling wake up for him. To have not clothed now in expensive garments, but to be clothed in fire. To be clothed in anguish. And where there was the future reversal for Lazarus, there's no reversal here. That's made clear, right, by the discussion. There's no crossing over. You don't get a drop for your tongue because there wasn't a scrap from your table for Lazarus. You were utterly callous to his cries, his concerns, his needs. 
Now, it's totally reversed. And you'll get nothing. You'll have no help whatsoever. It's interesting how the rich man wanted to be separate from the poor man. And he got his wish. He got his wish. Okay. You'll be separate from him. You want to be separate from the mercy of God, like not follow the mercy of God, not be generous like God. You you want to be separate from that? Okay, we'll separate you out from that forever. You won't even have his generosity that you enjoyed in this life. That's gone too. You're going to spit on his generosity and not follow his generosity, not seek to be like this generous, kind, loving God. Then you'll be cut off from that as well forever. It's a terrible, it's a terrible parable. It's a terrible parable. So, the fact that he's in Abraham's bosom shows God's compassion for him. The, the, the rich man's reduced to nothing. His riches don't mean anything. This man was in a coma of callousness, you might say. He failed to respond to that suffering, and now he is, he's receives that suffering. But I, I want to point in the end here to, to Christ in several ways. One is, do you know in all the parables, in all the parables, there's only one person that has a name. Lazarus. It doesn't matter how poor and broken and sickening you may think you are. He knows your name. He offers himself to you graciously. And here's the here's the added punch of that. It's not just that you and I are, are sick and physically in bad shape. We're spiritually in bad shape. In fact, you know how bad shape we are in? We're like the rich man. That's who we are. Oh yeah. When you grab your toy away and say mine and you hate your brother or sister and you want them just to go away and just die if they can so you can have your toy. Oh, just like the rich man. Right? When I neglect people, when I get angry at my own wife and can lose track of who she is and what we are before God, I see that I'm no different than this. By nature, I'm out for myself and I don't care about others. By nature, I'm just this way. Oil show itself in some other form or fashion. This is who I am. But Christ shows us this mercy in that he died for us. And he calls us in our sinfulness. And so maybe from one standpoint, this darkness, this sinfulness of us also kind of looks like this Lazarus sickness, right? We're lost in darkness. We're lost in self. We're lost 
in refusing to give our lives away to others. But Christ has come to redeem us, to forgive us, to die in our place for all the ways in which we have not loved one another. To bear away that punishment and then to begin to transform our lives so that we have the beauty of Jesus' own love that gives itself away to others. And so, in this way, in response to the love of Christ, in response to the forgiveness of Christ, in response to one who would die for me no matter my condition, then is I'm swept up. <laughs> then is born within me the beginning of a new love to others. And a way to, to take my stewardship of this world, these little things, and to begin to turn it out. To think of new ways that I can cut corners perhaps or save here, save there so that I might give more away. I'm, I'm bent on the use of what he's given me. Yes, I have to meet my needs and, and God gives us things to enjoy in this world. But as a central part of all that is, all that I have is given up to you. May you know the joy of living in this world with this world not being your master and you're not being on its leash, but you using this world for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus will make it happen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, to be those people, to walk in the footsteps of Christ, to give ourselves away even as Christ has given himself for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.